This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Dr. Lucy Jones, who is the fall 2015 Hitchcock Lecturer. She is a distinguished seismologist and education advocate. She has been a seismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey and a visiting research associate at the Seismological Laboratory of Caltech since 1983. Dr. Jones, welcome to Berkeley. Thanks for having me. Where were you born and raised? I am a native Southern Californian. I was born in Santa Monica and spent almost all of my childhood uh, somewhere in Southern California. And looking back, how do you think your parents influenced your thinking about the world? Oh, extremely fundamentally. My father was an aerospace engineer and loved science, loved math, just uh, all of that, and uh, um, taught me the joy of math at a time when girls were often not encouraged to be doing it. And uh, he would sometimes, I, I was like, yeah, women don't do math, but you're my daughter. Of course you do it. Um, <laughs> And, and then my mother was actually a spiritual director, uh, someone who gave, you know, did counseling and advice to people. So I sort of saw both uh, the, the value of logical reasoning and then the emotional side of how people respond so to things. So both sides of the brain were active. <laughs> I, I really see the influence of both of them and the way my career has ended up playing out. And, and what, what was it like growing up in earthquake country? Did that affect you at all? Not really, because it was a very quiet time, relatively speaking. Um, my first memory is an earthquake. Uh, I think I was two years old. I've actually tried to reconstruct where it was. And my mom gathering up us children, getting us in the hall, you know, dropping down. She covered us with her body. Um, so I have that distinct memory. Um, but, well, and then when I was, the, the biggest earthquake we had in Southern California was the 71 San Fernando earthquake. And I wasn't there. I was actually living with my aunt and uncle in Taiwan, and uh, so I got an a early lesson in communication issues where the news in Taiwan was Los Angeles destroyed by earthquake. <laughs> so I try to call my parents, and I can't get through. The phone lines are all jammed, and they don't call me, and I was just terrified that something really wrong had happened. They had no damage at all. They were waiting for my birthday, which was four days later, to call me to wish me happy birthday. So... Uh, found early on the difference between how it's portrayed and what the reality is. But before you went to college, what was uh, it like being a, a, a girl and then a young woman uh, and wanting to do science? Were you discouraged? Is, well, although, yeah, the schools tried to discourage me. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think my father was so important. I had a counselor that uh, when I scored a perfect score on the science aptitude test accused me of cheating and made me retake it in front of her. Um, I, had, I had a math teacher that when I got into both Brown and Harvard tried to convince me that I should go to Harvard because there was a better class of men to marry there. Uh, I went to Brown. <laughs> um, so yeah, the attitude about women in science when I was in high school was just assuming you couldn't possibly get there. By the time I got to college, it was the start. I started in fall of 72, the beginning of the women's movement. So people were no longer saying those things, but the girls had been discouraged earlier. So I was always the only girl in my class. Um, and, and then when I got to MIT, I was the only woman going into geophysics that year. By two years later, uh, the incoming class was the third women. 
So I was sort of just bef- right at the cusp, just before uh, women stopped hearing the sort of things I heard in high school. And what did you major in at Brown? I, I began as a physics major, but one of the nice things about Brown is there's no distribution requirements, so you can go in-depth at other things. So I was taking Chinese as my language. I had lived in Taiwan in high school. My grandparents had been missionaries in China. Um, half the family spoke Chinese. So I started studying Chinese. And you either have to get, you either drop out or get obsessed. You can't do it halfway. And um, I got obsessed. I spent my junior year of college back in Taipei studying Chinese and took my first geology class as a senior and um, fell in love, read the 900-page textbook in the first week because I couldn't put it down. And, <laughs> and it was in English, I assume. It, it was in English. Um, and uh, actually, I had tried to do science in, China, in Taiwan because I knew I was going to be a scientist. Um, and I discovered that the lessons were, all of the technical words were given in English anyway. You know, Kan Jaga equation. <laughs> you know, so I, I gave up um, uh, uh, doing that. So when I switched from physics to geophysics, I actually took the Chinese degree because after my year in Taiwan, I had all the requirements. And that left me free to take geophysics and structural geology instead of advanced electromagnetics. And, and why the move from physics to geophysics or any uh, uh, reason in particular? Oh, yeah. I met, um, I mean, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I don't think a lot of college people, I, you know, maybe I wanted to go in the foreign service. Maybe I wanted to be a scientist. Maybe I wanted to be a musician. Um, and uh, so I was still exploring and I met uh, a couple of geophysicists at a, a breakfast in my dorm, talked with them for a few hours, and they got me interested enough to take the geology class. And once I took it, I realized this is what I was looking for. It was a way of using that scientific analysis um, for things that mattered more. You know, instead of building bombs, I could be predicting earthquakes. Uh, at least back in the 70s, we still thought we'd be doing that. And, and then you went to MIT for your uh, PhD. Right. And uh, what did you do your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on earthquakes in China. So when I went to apply to graduate school, fluent in Chinese, um, in 1975 there had been an earthquake in China with over 500 foreshocks. And as far as we could tell, this was the Cultural Revolution time, it had been predicted. It looked like there were a lot of lives saved. So when I applied to MIT and I spoke Chinese, they said, why don't we get you studying foreshocks? And then if China ever opens up, we can send you over and you can try and understand what happened here. And it worked with perfect timing. So I had just passed my general's exams when the president's science advisor, Frank Press, went to China. And uh, um, they wanted an exchange program. You know, here's 60 Chinese ready to go. So the Americans were scrambling to try and do it really quickly. And I was able to put in this application. I've just written this paper on foreshocks. I'm fluent in Chinese. The Chinese look to it, you know, be the farthest along on earthquake prediction, put it all together. Uh, and it worked, and it didn't help. It didn't hurt that the um, president science advisor was actually my recommendation because um, he had been the chair of the department when I had started at MIT. So, uh, so I got to be in that first group. There were six scientists and then seven students who went to um, Beida to, to uh, Peking University, and um, I was. Uh, but I was actually. I went over with the students. I was actually the first scientist because I was the only one who wasn't a professor 
and therefore could leave in the middle of the term. The rest of them had to wait till they finished the teaching, and they came in May and June. And 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 what what was that like? I mean, it, it, you were talking about it at a time when uh, China has not taken off economically yet. Oh, it, it, and and it was still a very uh, much more restrictive society. When I arrived there, everybody was in Mao suits. Uh, by the end of the first year. Um, some women might be using colored scarves, and that was like radical. <laughs> um, and I was the 35th American to arrive in Beijing. Um, and it was a time they had just started allowing, I, a Chinese woman could be alone in a room with me, but a Chinese man couldn't. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I went to the Institute of Geophysics, interestingly, lot, Chinese didn't have the thing about women not doing math. So there were plenty of women and a um, one of the women scientists was assigned to work with me. And it, it took a while for me to figure out that, you know, somebody would come in and she was off, you know, in the bathroom or something, and he'd see me there and turn around and leave, <laughs> come back later when she was there, and then want to talk to me, not her. And it sort of, it was a subtle enough thing. I'm like trying to finally figure this out. And then when I went to the Institute of Geology, there were, there were no women, because women didn't do field work. That was sort of the prejudice there. And so there were two geologists assigned to work with me. And if one of them went to the bathroom, the other one got up and walked out too. Um, so it was still a very much more politically restrictive time. All my mail was read. Um, and it was, uh, but it was also a very egalitarian time. Nobody was rich, but nobody was really poor. Um, in Taiwan, you would see beggars. There were no beggars in China. Um, my aunt came to visit me, and she had been born and brought up in China. And she was so astonished to see trees because when she was in Nanjing in the 30s, the trees would always get cut down for wood by somebody that you know, would steal the trees because they were so poor and they, they couldn't afford the fuel. And that people were well enough off to let the trees grow to her was astonishing. And of course now you know, China's growing economically. It's, it's a very different place, but it's also a much less egalitarian place than it was. And, and what it, what it, uh, you must have gone back several times as a scientist. Uh, I actually, you t- what, are you, what are your impressions of how it has changed on the human level? I haven't gone back since 1983. Oh, okay. We actually, so I went four times, and the last time I was there, we uncovered a case of scientific fraud. And it wasn't like it was widespread fraud. It was an individual but it was reflective of the system at the time that it hadn't been caught. And partly, you know, the, the core of the scientific process is that we attack each other, right? It's, I think it's one of the reasons you don't see as many women researchers. We finally go, hey, I don't, I don't like the environment. But a core of being a scientist is tearing apart your colleagues. And you have to, that's how we find the truth, right? You don't have to be mean. Sometimes people are, but, but you need to be critical, and as we were discovering the problem in China and trying to explain it, and we were saying, you know, somebody's going to review this and they're going to ask why this, you know, looks wrong and they, or looks different from something in the past. And they were like, well, we just say this is what we did. I said, no, they're going to want to understand why. It's like, why would they think we're lying? And it was sort of this light for me that at that time, the culture of China were kuti, the spirit of the spirit of the guest, politeness, is necessary to function in a society that that's, is that crowded. And so there's a very strong cultural aversion to what's necessary in science, of sort of the attack on each other. Um, 
and at the time, we saw this sort of symptomatic, and I thought, you know, I really need to establish my career somewhere other than China, because at the time, I was the woman who went to China. Um, and of course, it's changed radic- you know, radically now, the, the whole interchange. That part is really not the issue that it was. But once I got really established in California and then my children were born, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't, uh, uh, and I've ended up never going back. Uh, I like to ask my guests about what they see as the skills and temperament to do the work they do. First, let me ask you about being a seismologist. You've already identified some just now, but, but tell us a little more. I mean, what, what, what is the skill set you really need and what is the temperament that is desirable? Wow. Um, a fundamental, I think, of most scientists, number one is being an introvert, that thinking six months alone in front of a computer terminal is a good way to spend your life. And that's a pretty core difference with a lot of the world because you need to have that ability to focus and tune out the other parts because to, a scientific advance happens because you, you've been able to get down and isolate one factor off from everything else. So you, you do all your work down in the weeds. You need to be able to part out each piece of the weed and, and go, if I change only this one piece, this is how the result changes. And then you've proven what's the control factor there. And especially in seismology, earthquakes are such a complex process. Um, it's very difficult to get into the weeds. Um, and you have to, there's, there's so many weeds there, right? So you've got to have that ability to, to dig down. Um, you need to have that ability to, God, how do you, to, 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 to part the pieces, to see where they, they line up. And I actually think that one of the really key issues is, is how to ask the right question. My dad used to like to say this. There's, this. there's the set of all of the questions that we can answer, and there's the set of the questions that people want answers to. Finding where that intersection is is um, where productive stuff happens. And uh, I think that's a... Um, it isn't necessarily a general characteristic among all scientists, but it's a really important one to be able to have. And, and what about temperament? You've already talked a little about that. I mean, you, you've got to be argumentative and stand your ground, obviously. Yes, you need to have enough confidence to do this. Um, there was a point in my graduate career with my thesis advisor, who was a brilliant man and um, dedicated and very critical. And um, I then was also doing some lab work with someone else. And who was more complimentary. And I finally went to my first advisor and said, I think it's clear you don't like what I'm doing. Professor Brace does. Why don't I move over? And he looked at me and goes, what are you talking about? You're the best student I have. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I started crying, which was like, oh, great, you know, just what they need to have from a woman. Um, we ended up having this long talk, and he really didn't realize, because that's part of what you do, you direct a person by, by taking them. And so you have to have that confidence um, to believe that you're right. And you, there, it does require a level of arrogance um, to, to fight for yourself. Um, and, and yet, if you are too arrogant, you don't hear what the others are doing. And a, another core piece of science is that you, um, we are wrong most of the time. <laughs> you spend your time researching things, and this is a dead end, and this is a dead end, and you've proven that this doesn't work. It's in pursuit of a, of a bigger right, 
right? And we like being right. Human beings love being right. But you have to be relatively comfortable with being wrong and that also recognizing that every advance is disproving something else. So you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to accept, I believe this is right, but there, if some other piece of information comes along, I'm going to prove it's going to, it proves it wrong. I need to be willing to let go of it. And at least with scientists, you know, we believe that data conquers all. Um, there was a famous story from the early plate tectonics that my professor told me of one particular track of data that really proved the seafloor spreading ideas. And the famous guy who had been opposed to the idea, the data's presented, everybody's quiet as he examines it. It was a famous meeting in 1968. And he finally just looked at the other authors and went, congratulations, and walked out of the room. I mean, <laughs> it was like so humiliating, he couldn't stay and talk with them. But he could say congratulations, and that's sort of the ideal of science, is that you can give it up. Uh, throughout your career, we talked about the earlier stages. What, how, did, how did the, the, the glass ceiling for women come down, or was this not a problem as, as you did so well in your field? Um, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. I, um, I'm late enough that it wasn't, nobody would be explicitly saying women can't do it. You know, 10 years earlier, you get told you don't get the place in the class that goes to a man who's not going to get married and leave. We didn't get that. But there is a certain amount that, um, you know, I don't have the highest level of recognition in the USGS for, for my work. Um, and, and so it's, it hasn't really gotten in the way, though. And I think that going to work for the U.S. Geological Survey instead of an academic institution um, relieves some of the problems. I mean, there is a bit more of a, a structure. There's a little less, there's a little more objectivity to how the promotion process happens. And I don't need to have the big academic recognition to have the freedom to go and do my work. So, um, and I, and I actually think that in sort of, rather, not in the research itself, I mean, the research sort of, the, the gender is, is, is somewhat um, less uh, obvious. Um, I did at one point decide I should put, use initials instead of my name on paper so it wasn't obvious that I was a woman, but my last name is Jones. <laughs> and then I started getting confused with a whole lot of other people, so I decided I, I, I better not do that. Um, but in the role that I ended up taking on of how to communicate about the science to the public, that's where my gender started becoming a very positive thing. Um, there was a rather famous incident with the big earthquake 20 years ago where my husband, who's also a seismologist, literally handed me our baby in the middle of an interview. And I ended up doing interviews carrying a baby. And it caused a huge public outpouring of support because... Actually, when you think about it, why do you want to talk to a seismologist after an earthquake anyway? Knowing what fault it's on is not going to help you rebuild your house. But knowing what fault it's on and hear me say, give it a number, give it a name, give it a fault, I'm saying somebody understands what happened to you and that makes it less scary. And then you do it with the image of motherhood. Um, you know, you always feel better when mommy tells you it's okay than when daddy does. So it actually, I think... Um, encouraged people's response to me and allowed me to be a more effective communicator because of the sort of emotional connection that people formed. What, what is your most important research 
accomplishment in seismology. It, it, it's dealing with. I got to pick one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, let me let me give you two. Sort okay. Of the, the early stage of my career came out of China, and was doing probabilities of earthquake sequences. So you know, there's this earthquake in China. They pre- they did evacuate places because there was this big swarm of earthquakes going on, and. And what I came to realize is they didn't know more about those earthquakes than we do. The fact that they happened increased the probability of an earthquake, but it still wasn't a 50% probability. And in fact, they evacuated other times. Oh, no earthquake, go back in. And in China, you could do that and still get people to go out the next time. For us, Hmm. not because of scientific differences, but because of social differences, we couldn't respond to the same information in the same way. And realizing that wasn't a scientific question. So I said, okay, how do I get that scientific information to the policymaker who really should be making the decision? And therefore got into statistics, ended up being the one who created the first assessment of what's the chance that one earthquake will be a foreshock. It has been the basis of all of the earthquake advisories in the state of California. So when we have something near the San Andreas and we make a statement about the probability of the San Andreas earthquake, that's all based on research that I was part of or that you know, an earthquake happens, what's your chance of aftershocks? What pattern are they going to be taking? And what was the key there? How, what, what did you determine allowed you to make the prediction? Well, it was actually just recognizing that we could... It wasn't that difficult. It was dividing one number into another. It was saying, let's just go use the history. And when I low and look at the history, 5% of earthquakes were followed by something bigger within, next, within three days. So just, and that it, what didn't seem to be dependent on the magnitude of the first earthquake. Um, so, you know, that became a relative, quite simple statement that we could make and move forward. Also showing that the temporal decay of main shocks after foreshocks is the same as aftershocks after main, after main shocks. So you can end up saying that a foreshock is just a main shock that happens to have a really big aftershock. And that you can mathematically express the full range of earthquake triggering with the same set of equations. So it became a unified approach to being able to do that. And then as we've gone into computer eras, you can then you know, do automatic processing and immediately say uh, these, type of, these type of numbers. And, and so it's, it was both the scientific analysis that allowed us to come up with those numbers. And then another, but it, it pushed me even more into the social side because I'm now working with emergency managers and they're misunderstanding the information. You know, we say there's a 5% chance of an earthquake within the next three days. And instead of within three days, it becomes in three days. And they're hmm. doing things now for the earthquake coming in three days. And I'm going, no, 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 wait a minute. Right now is the most dangerous time. And it, it sort of gave me very concrete examples of how the communication barrier was affecting the way in which the information could get used. You said two of many achievements. What was the second one? Okay, well, then the second one would be what's happened in the last decade. So with the social interaction starting to say, I need to, um, we need to do a better job of getting our science used. I was given the opportunity to lead what was called the multi-hazards demonstration project to demonstrate how hazard science could improve a community's resilience to natural disasters. And I actually thought in accepting that, that I was basically walking away from my academic career. I said to myself, all right, I'm 50. I'm, you know, maybe I have another 30 papers to write and five of them will be read and two of them will matter. Um, 
but if I don't do it, I can see the young people who are going to write those two papers. Whereas if I don't do the multi-hazards project, it wouldn't get done. So, okay, I'll sacrifice my academic career, go and do this. We'll see what the community wants from us. And we asked the you know, emergency managers, land use planners, what do you need from science you're not getting? Got a very strong message that they wanted scenarios. And my first thought was, oh, damn, why did I say I'd do what they wanted? That sounds really boring. But we, we okay, it's what you want. How do we do it right? And ended up being able to bring together teams. Literally, we had over 300 people working on our first big scenario, which was of a San Andreas earthquake in Southern California. Making sure we did cutting edge science, we did the best we could in dozens of disciplines. Instead of saying, okay, I'm an engineer, I've got the best possible engineering, and I'll just grab something from the seismologists and grab something from the economists, make sure we got the best seismologist, the best engineer, the best economist. And the result was a much more concrete picture of what um, the result, what, what, what it means when we give you a probability of an earthquake. And we were able to, we needed the best science so we had the credibility, but we needed to do this integrated approach so that people understood it and saw how it related to their lives. And um, I ended up, uh, you know, publishing 40 papers in 10 years, so I turned out not to be cutting off my academic career and has really led to a lot of the recognition I've had recently because it's, it's about getting science used. And, and to what, uh, it, it sounds to me like uh, something in your background gave you uh, 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 the capacity to have your ear to the ground and not just listen to earthquakes. I, I mean, in other words, to be sensitive, on the one hand, to the implications of science and what you can do with science, but then understand the difficulty of doing that. Where, where, where did that come from, that skill I... set? Well, okay, I think it's a range of things. Uh, both my parents played a role. Um, my mom as being a spiritual director, people you know, cared about how people were feeling. That was honored and important and an awareness around me. I, I tended to be more like my father, and she would be terribly frustrated with me as I was way too analytical for her. Um, but even my father, you know, he prided himself on being able to find that intersection of the questions we could answer and the questions that people needed the answer to. And so not just the science, but how it gets used. And, um, and then the experience in China was a really big piece of doing that by seeing that how the science was used was completely different, not because of the science, but because of the social settings. Um, and that they should evacuate because they had ton, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying in their buildings. We could kill more people on the freeway than we save by, you know, by the prediction. Um, and so that process, and then it evolves with the, um, you know, being on TV, getting this response to, to my being on TV. Um, and part of that led to me being named to the Seismic Safety Commission, which is a state political body. Um, and I was the only seismologist, um, you have, you know, Emergency managers, the, uh, utilities, local government, all the stakeholders in the earthquake problem. And that's where I was overwhelmed at seeing how much really basic stuff about earthquakes that is so basic the scientists don't bother to talk about it because, you know, we should be teaching it in eighth grade. 
but we don't teach earthquakes in eighth grade. Somehow California doesn't think its citizens need to know anything about earthquakes to live here. And so we're seeing decision makers not using really basic information. And that was, that was the big lesson I took out of the Seismic Safety Commission, that we need to step back and you know, communicate the stuff that no longer interests us as scientists, but is needed by the population to use it. So, so in a way, you're suggesting that science education, if it exists, is, is really about training people to be scientists. And you're worrying about the people who need science in whatever they're going to do. Right. I mean, this is, to me, I think it's a fundamental flaw in society that is being exacerbated in the Internet age. So we generally treat science education as the process of filtering through all the people and finding out who can become scientists. And even when you hear people talking about the need for STEM education, it's because we have all these STEM careers. It's not because non-scientists need to think this way. And yet, we've, we've reached, I, I actually like to compare it to what we used to treat reading as something that only the specialists needed, right? And then you have the industrial age and you have the printing press, and instead of getting your information from the the priest talking to you from the pulpit, you're supposed to be reading yourself in the newspaper. And you could still support yourself without reading, but you couldn't be part of the social discourse. Now we have this switch into the internet era in which we no longer have the restrictions of the cost of publishing restricting the information you get. We used to have editors that said, this is worth publishing and this isn't. Now everything's out there. And you're not supposed to be making that decision yourself, whether this is information worth listening to. That is science research skill. The skill of science is how to analyze the significance of data and determine what part's worth listening to and what isn't. How do you know for yourself something's true? A scientist doesn't believe something because 97% of other scientists believe it. We're affected by that, right? But we assume that we can do our own analysis and figure out whether or not it's believable. I believe in climate change because it's really basic facts. I can go into a chemistry lab and watch what happens when I have more carbon dioxide in a gas and I trap more heat and I can measure the carbon dioxide and there's more there. It's basic. I do the analysis myself. And we are not training non-scientists to think that way. And I think that is a huge flaw in our society that's leading to really bad decision-making because... and. We've actually got sort of a cultural thing right now where things don't have to be true. We can, we can make them true because we believe them. We're just going to say it's true until everybody else agrees. That works for human motivation. It doesn't work for physical fact. And we have a really scary thing going on in society that, you know, it's sort of the journalist's idea. There's no truth. There's always another side of the story. Well, to a scientist, there's truth. You just have a better or worse representation So, so of what it. would a curriculum look like that uh, taught scientific skills, uh, but not just for the scientists? Do you mix the students up, that, that is, the ones who want to be scientists, or do you have special courses? I think that, well, I think that we need to be doing this uh, in, in elementary and secondary education. Mm -hmm. So this is before you've separated out. And I, and what I've heard of the next, gen science, next generation science standards, there's a lot of the right things in there that instead of saying the student needs to understand what you know, the parts of the periodic table are, the student needs to understand how to make a model. The student needs to be able to model 
the nature of chemical interaction. And um, so I've seen some high school chemistry stuff where you say, okay, why, why do x-rays pass through your body but not through the lead apron? And you come up with a hypothesis, and then you do the lecture series on reaction energies, and you discover it isn't because it's extra dense, it's because it, takes, it, it absorbs the um, x-rays because the, you can't excite the, it takes too much energy to excite the uh, um, electrons up into the upper orbitals, right? Almost nobody knows that, and yet, you know, you, you, and so you then modify the, the, the hypotheses. So it's teaching the children how to make a model and assess it against data. And in the process, you learn these facts that we also think people need to know, but you do it through a framework of saying, how do I go from a hypothesis to an assessment of the hypothesis? You've been involved in a lot of uh, uh, public mass uh, kitchens, I guess you would call them, uh, where people actually pretend there is an earthquake or a tsunami. Talk a little about that, because that's another form of education, when people actually live through an event that hasn't happened yet. Right. So this was part of the multi-hazards demonstration project. We said we're demonstrating how it will actually improve resilience. Terrifying thing to a scientist to define the success by something we don't control. We are defining it by how somebody uses our information instead of the information we create. And so we were looking at this. How do we get people to understand what we discovered about the earthquake um, in a way that will change behavior? So we turned to the social sciences. And actually, there's a lot of information in there on how people get information. And we created the first, what was called the Great Southern California Shakeout, as a uh, method of getting people to understand what was in our scenario of a San Andreas earthquake, which was also called the shakeout scenario. And we, uh, one of the big ones that we heard is that uh, people do what they see other people doing. Visual reinforcement really affects people's behavior. It's why fashion works, right? We see other people wearing things. So we needed to find a way of, of seeing other people preparing for an earthquake. And so we focused on the, uh, the drop cover hold on drill. It's a good thing to do. We need to, you know, plenty of Californians didn't go to Californian schools, so they never learned it. Um, and yet it's, and it's a very strong visual, you know, uh, sitting under a table, you know, you look sort of idiotic, but it's, uh, it's very clearly getting ready for the earthquake. So it was that visual reinforcement. They also tell us people do what, they need to talk with others they care about. Uh, about what happens to, to make the decision to do it. So we had the drill in a way that schools and businesses, we tried to encourage them to do the drill on the same day. So you come home from work and, Mommy, I had an earthquake drill today. Oh, I had one too. You start talking about it at home. Um, so we, we worked with the social scientist and tried to create it. We intended it as a one-time event. Uh, we ended up getting five and a half million people in the first event, which is one quarter of the population of Southern California. You get one quarter, you know, five million people to do the same thing. You know, elected officials take notice. Um, and the state of California came to us and said, we want to make this an annual event. Um, my first thought was, oh, no, I've already given you a year. Enough. Um, but it's, and it's been really interesting watching how it's developed. Um, we had over 26 million people last year in, in 2014 in the um, 
uh, in the shakeout somewhere across the country. We've seen it spread to a lot of regions. We've seen it a bit disconnected from the science. And that part to me, I'd like to try and get people to reconnect. So we did it first time off of the, the, the particular science scenario. And in Southern California, it's still very much tied to that scenario. As it's spread elsewhere, they don't have their own local ones. And I'd like to see more people really try to develop those comprehensive scenarios so when people are doing the drill, it's connected to what the science tells them is really going to happen. You, you feel that there is a communication problem between what scientists know and the, the, beyond these drills, getting people to, to understand the implications of, of what might be a catastrophe or disaster. Talk a little about that, because it, I think you're saying that we need better narratives, better storytelling to get people to have a handle on what's happening. Well, right. What might happen. What, what, no, what will happen. Um, mm. And I think that that's it. we actually understand a lot about what was happening. And many people, especially with earthquakes, it's true to, uh, in a lot of the disasters, they think it's, it's capricious. This building was damaged, this one wasn't, who knows what's going to happen. Well, in fact, this one's on softer soil, this one had retrofitted its foundation. Uh, It's a very complex pattern, but we, in fact, really understand very well which buildings and and where the the damage is going to be. So it was, how do we get people to believe this? And one of the things that's been in the way is the the siloing of science. You have this, you know, seismologist that tells you what the shaking is going to be. You have an engineer that tells you how your building responds. We have an economist looking at social interactions. We have an infrastructure. And, and the pieces are hard to connect up, and especially on an earthquake that doesn't happen that often. What we did in creating our scenarios was to create a story and even more, a scientifically defensible story. So when you look at how people make decisions, they do it because of stories and because of their emotional connection to it. Um, scientists hate stories. We are trained in graduate school to believe, and it's true, so- stories are misleading. Stories tell you is an anecdote. The whole point of science is to not be misled by anecdotes and make sure that it happens every time. So we're trained early on to reject stories and never use them. And yet that is how most of the rest of the world communicates and makes decisions. And so what we did in the scenario process was try to bridge that gap. We didn't, it's only as I look back that I realized that that, what was important about the process. So that when you have the, and, and the hardest part was actually getting the scientists to agree to the story. Because in doing a scenario of an earthquake, I have to make a lot of assumptions, right? I assume exactly, and I've made so many assumptions, the next earthquake will not be that one. Some of the details will be different. And that's where we live is in the details of scientists. And so we had a really difficult time with the scientists going, you can't be sure that's what it is. And we're going, we don't need to be sure. We need to say it's plausible. That became the most important word we could use. Plausible was, became the bridge between the scientists living in our uncertainty and knowing all those possibilities to the people who needed a concrete narrative to be able to act on it. 
and plausible became our bridge. So, so let's develop this a little further. So if you were working up a scenario and you said, well, an earthquake uh, will hit this block or this area of houses in Oakland uh, sometime in the future, then is the point to say, well, if there is structural damage to houses, then the following happens. People aren't going to have a place to live. People aren't going to, uh, people may abandon their property. Are those the kind That's of... That's the kind of things, but it's, it's actually a pretty long narrative going, okay, here's the fault. We, the Hayward fault is, you know, very capable of it. What would the pattern of damage, what is the pattern of shaking going to be? Because that's what seismology does. And many people think that an earthquake happens at a point. It's at the epicenter, right? Well, no. It's over a surface. So what is that distribution of shaking and how we're going to, we know bad soils give you worse shaking. But we have to model exactly what the slip is and it's going to be some different pattern. All right, so when we pick one of those patterns, this is plausible. Now we've got these neighborhoods that have this impact and this damage to this buildings and this damage to this infrastructure. And that means we've now got you know, uh, a population of renters who've lost their housing and they've also lost their job because there's no water and therefore that restaurant had to shut down. Okay, I'm going to give up and go stay with my family down in Southern California. I'm going out to Oklahoma. We start losing population. And how to make the connections between all of those things in a plausible way. And the reality is it's a very complex system. The final one will be different, but this is the type of information. And then we go back and go and say, well, look, at that really key issue became the loss of water. If we could get our water pipes fixed so that we kept those jobs, people would be willing to do it. Or, you know, and we end up saying usually there's, there's three or four or five things that seem to be the biggest problems. And then we can take it to elected officials to let, you know, urban planners and go, if you don't f fix this, you have the potential of losing your society. And then we go and look at places like New Orleans after Katrina, show them what happened to the GDP of New Orleans. It's a very compelling argument. So, so you were an advisor to the mayor of, uh, of Los Angeles. And the, the, the goal, what, what you decided was to identify certain vulnerabilities and show them in scenarios like, like you just did? Well, yes, it was an interesting process. So we had already done the shakeout scenario. We had some really clear things that were really big problems. We had a new mayor, um, very energetic, you know, intelligent man who wanted to address some of the big issues. And uh, I actually negotiated this out with the deputy mayor, and it's a very interesting process. So how do we couldn't go in and say we're going to solve the earthquake problem? That's that's defining the problem to fail because the problem is so big. There's no way we can deal with it all in a year. So let's define areas that are really critical needs, and that we know we have a path to a successful. We have something we could do that would make a difference. So we only chose areas that we knew we had something to do that would that would be able to look like a success that was the political necessity and um but then we had the freedom to explore 
the range of problems. So what we ended up recommending out of the process had some of those easy fixes that, well, not easy, but easily defined fixes that we knew would be needed. But then in many cases, we were able to go quite a bit beyond it. But we didn't try to go out and solve other problems because, you know, you, you concentrate your effort where it's going to make the biggest difference. And that was a, that's a hard thing for a scientist to the sort of political necessity and the pragmatism of it. Uh, I, you know, we're much more inclined to say, here's the range of problems. Here's the, uh, and, and, and narrowing down and doing concrete actions. So you've worked at various levels of government. And in all, all state uh, and the, uh, the city, and one thing that strikes me is common to all these levels is they don't have a long-term perspective because of the next election. And so that, that's a problem you have to deal with because you're talking about fixing the pipes that bring the water uh, and the pipes are wooden and they cross the San Andreas Fault. So sometime in the future, that's not right. going to work. Well, it, it's an interesting thing. There was a, a really interesting editorial in a uh, downtown L.A. newspaper after Mayor Garcetti announced the Resilience by Design program. And, and they were saying, you know, politicians always walk away from the earthquake problem because if you go and, you know, decide you want to spend money on it, either there won't be an earthquake before you're out of office and then why did you waste our money – or there will be an earthquake before you're out of office and your changes won't have had time to take effect. So why, you know, you'll look ineffective. Um, so mostly it gets ignored. And then they proceeded to go and give Mayor Garcetti huge political credit for having worked on something for which you didn't get political credit. Mm -hmm. So it's been sort of an interesting dynamic. I mean, I think that I was accepted in really because of an individual's insight. I, I credit Mayor Garcetti a lot for the courage to take this on and to just say, I care about Los Angeles and I don't care if it's not going to happen before I'm done. I'm going to work on this. So it took political courage and it took the vision to see what the issues were. Uh, what's very encouraging is watching how much status and credit he's getting for having done it. So we're now seeing other political leaders wanting to uh, start tackling with the issues as well. There are numerous cities in southern in Los Angeles County that are looking now to adopt the same regulations that Los Angeles has just put in place. Um, so yes, it tends to be a problem. Uh, you know, the political world forces you to look at a pretty short time frame. But the best elected officials realize that the future of their city is bigger than that and to, to do the planning that carries the city forward. Uh, and, and you need to have that to get this to work. It would be interesting to identify some of the elements here that you have learned in this process of awakening people to the long-term problems of earthquakes because obviously the insights you've gathered apply to things like climate change. And the, the, the first thing that comes to mind in the case of climate change, less so in the case of earthquakes, is the politicization of the process, right. which is to, to say the science is bad uh, or it's inaccurate and this group or that group 
will fund disinformation. So it's not just that people don't know, but there is disinformation being produced. Well, I, I see a couple of issues tied into this. One is that, you know, people don't feel empowered to make the decision for themselves. They they believe in something because they believe the person who's saying it rather than their own ability to, to analyze it. But I also see it, a, a lot of science communication issues that feed into this. So one is the way scientists talk about things, we talk about our uncertainty. When we go to give a result to a colleague, we never start by saying, I think this. We start by saying, I set out the experiment and I considered these variables and I recognize this level of uncertainty and given all this, it suggests that the answer is X. You know, when a, a scientist says, it, you know, the data suggests this, that's actually extremely strong statement from a scientist. But that's not the way it's heard by other people. And when we talk that way, we start by saying, here's all the uncertainty, here's all the things that aren't known. The non-scientist hears this message and goes, they don't know what they're talking about. They're hearing the uncertainty. So that's a chunk in how it's done. And um, what I did with the city, and that's the whole process of doing the scenario as opposed to probabilities of earthquake occurrence, I'm focusing on what we know, which are the consequences of the disaster, rather than on what we don't know, which is when it's going to occur. So, um, you know, as scientists, we're more interested in what we don't know, because that's where the research is. So exactly what percentage of climate change comes from human activity? That's an interesting scientific question. But when you talk about it that way, you aren't emphasizing that, in fact, a big chunk we know comes from human activity. We know. And, but we don't say it that way because of scientists we communicate. The other issue is that we need to, the sociologists tell us that when you give a problem without a solution, you increase anxiety and reduce the ability to act. And if you want people to take action, you need to combine the pro you give the problem, here's what you do about it. And that's what happened with me in Los Angeles. I said, here's the problem, and here's what we can do. Fix these buildings, get this water. On climate change, we need to say, um, the, the scientists are uncomfortable saying it's somebody else's job how to deal with it. We know we've got to reduce carbon, but that's somebody else's job. Whereas I think if we say, look, at, here's the problem, and what we can do about it is develop better renewable energy resources so that we don't have to keep on doing this, and besides, we're running out of oil anyway. You know, eventually, we're going to burn it all up. We're going to have to move there. And the only question is how much social disruption we go through before we get there. Now you've got, oh, there's something I can do. I just make sure my elected uh, officials promote development of renewable energy. And besides, that means we'll be in the driver's seat in the, the brave new world when oil is no longer in control of things. What, what you're describing is the need for, I'll call it a mediating class of people, who know the science and are uh, and who have worked in the political process, and part of their task would be to create the narratives that make sense for the political leaders. Is that fair? It's only part of the problem because there are a certain number of these. There are people who get their science degrees, go become congressional fellows, are staffed to you know different types of elected officials, and have been in that sort of interpretive role. So we've sort of already got that function. What we don't have is the scientist willing to reach out to meet them. And so it's more than saying we need someone to interpret it. 
often we're trying to create scientific products that better address the answers. So what I've done here, we have our scientists saying what the risks are. We have people in the political sphere that are, can accept science. But we needed to make this product that said, here's what the implications of these scientific hazards are. And um, so it's, we sometimes call it risk translation, how to go from the hazards to the risk, which is an interdisciplinary scientific development process. Um, and that, it's because it's so interdisciplinary, it's very hard to, to get it moving or who has the mission for it. You know, the U.S. Geological Survey has supported me doing this, but fundamentally our mission is the hazards. I, I push the comfort zone by going in in this direction. And we're, we're making a decision now. Society needs it too much. We have to keep on going. But it's an uncomfortable process. You, you uh, have talked about communication. You talked about the, the failings of science with regard to this dimension. What about leadership, political leadership? You've worked with the mayor. That experience was very successful. Can you identify some of the characteristics that you think political leaders will have to have in the future to manage this? They're going to have to have a science education, it sounds like, but also be sensitive to uh, the kinds of solutions and the political costs in navigating that terrain. Well, you know, I, I think that what we need is um, intelligence to be able to make all of these connections and a commitment to a future vision to be able to move beyond just the election cycle. And I'd say in general we're seeing a certain amount of this at the city level. Um, Mayor Garcetti loved to tout a book called If Mayors Ruled the World, uh, which is just a recent <laughs> analysis of uh, that sort of where the progressive, innovative stuff is happening is often in these, uh, the mayors, especially in the larger cities. Because once you get up to higher levels of government, um, I think there's sort of more tensions pulling in different directions. And you get to the federal level, we're on money. The feds tend to be a money source but it's very hard to do a solution because it's just too big a problem. And especially when you look at um, issues around natural disasters. And, you know, the rate of earthquakes is not increasing, but the number of people living in earthquake areas is. And the rate of meteorologic disasters is going up. This is going to be a major issue in our future. And, you know, the, the emergency managers like to say all disasters are local. In, in the end, it's what happens in your community. It's what's, you know, it's individuals and neighborhoods. And if, if all disasters are local, all resilience is local too. And if we really want to get this through, it's about, you know, about my pipes, my buildings, um, and my neighborhood and my community. And will I, will life be so awful that my community is no longer worth staying with? So it's both dealing with the very practical physical things but also making it a community that people want to stay in is worth fighting for and is worth helping recover because it's not going to be easy. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Jones, I want to thank you. And, and by the way, I want to congratulate you because for all of your work, you were just awarded the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Medi Medi Medal uh, in Citizen Services uh, last week for your work in L.A. It is uh, really amazing. As I said, I thought that I was walking away from 
recognition because I just saw it as too important to do. And um, it's been very satisfying as, as uh, some of these accolades have come through and recognizing people want, people want science. We can make a difference and we just have to figure out how to bridge the gap in communication. Well, on that very positive <laughs> note, thank you very much for being on our program. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.